1 Corinthians 8. It's said that idle hands are the devil's playthings. Or so the old proverb goes, idle hands. There are various versions of that, the devil's playground, the devil's workshop, talking about laziness and lethargy, idle hands. The Bible warns against the bread of idleness, Proverbs 31, 24. But what Paul is about to deal with now, far more culturally subtle and far more dangerous, is the bread of idolatry. I say subtle because in American culture today, idolatry is not such an obvious thing. And yet, in Corinthian culture, in Hellenistic culture, idolatry was all over the place. And so, the Apostle now takes up the next Corinthian church concern. We know he's on to the next one because he begins, Perry Day, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. He's going to stay on this subject all the way through chapter 10. But before we get there, I want you to understand, we need to understand what's really going on here. The traditional understanding of this passage is that Paul is simply responding to an internal church issue. Between stronger and weaker Christians as to whether or not they can buy meat at the shambles. The shambles? And you may recall, those were the meat markets where meat that had been sacrificed in the pagan temples was taken to these markets and sold at a cheaper price, and the people could buy them for a cheaper price. And so some believe coming into 1 Corinthians 8, that that's the issue. You've got Christians at Corinth who are like, it's not a big deal. I'm just buying cheap meat. And you have others saying, yeah, but it was sacrificed in the temple. That's a problem. And so because of this argument, they write to Paul. Marketplace meat, is that the issue here? I think it's far more serious than that. And the reason I say so is Paul's tone, especially as we get into the ninth chapter, becomes almost combative. In chapter 9, he actually is going to pause and vigorously defend his apostolic authority right in the middle of talking about this because it's such an important issue and they need to understand that what he's saying is not something as opinionated as we saw in chapter 7. Right? He gave several opinions. Uh, the Lord says this and he says, I say this. I don't require this or command this, but I think this is a good idea. He doesn't do that in 8, 9, and 10. And the real issue is more than meets the eye. It's not just about meat bought at the shambles. Not just sacrificed meat. The more important issue here is where the dining took place and who it affected. And the key verse is verse 10. For if someone sees you who have, quote-unquote, knowledge, dining in an idol's temple... Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? The place and the people affected by those going to the place. That's the issue. Feasting in pagan temples. You might say, why would any new Christian do that? Wouldn't they take an about face and go as far away from those pagan temples as possible? Why would they head back there and start eating in those establishments? Because it was embedded in culture. For many, not even a religious thing. It's just what you did. In fact, some suggest that the temples were ancient restaurants. If you wanted to go out to eat, you went to the temple. 
You ate the meat there where it was prepared. Annual festivals, holiday celebrations, private parties all took place in the pagan temples. Now again, today we'd say, well, I wouldn't go back once I was free by Christ. I wouldn't go back to the old temples, really. Think about this. We might compare them to the innocuous American celebrations of Valentine's Day. What's wrong with Valentine's Day? Hallmark made that up, right? No, actually it has pagan roots, but I won't take much time on that tonight. Just trying to free some of you guys from all of the pressure. (laughs) Earth Day. What's wrong with Earth Day? Well, if you're worshiping the Earth, there's a big problem. Well, I don't worship the earth on earth. Yeah, but many do. How about Halloween? I grew up trick-or-treating. And some might say, yeah, but... Okay, Rick, those are just innocuous. Those are traditions without meaning. They're just fun. They're things we do in our culture. They're not about gods or idols or deities or, or demons. For some, they are. And the roots go very, very deep. And I'm just trying to give you an example of why this might have been a Corinthian problem. Holiday traditions are hard to set aside. What I'm saying is we can be so caught up in these things as a cultural norm. It's what we do. And we come to Christ and we don't change those things because what's the harm? What's the big deal? Now, I'm not about to go after all of our holiday traditions in America. Romans 14, verse 5, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So again, the issue is not celebrating truly innocuous things. It's where the celebrations were taking place and who was affected by it. And that's Paul's primary concern. Now, based on Paul's responses in these three chapters, we can gather that the Corinthian Christians had written to him with at least four arrogant arguments. The first argument is that they get idolatry. They understand. They get it. And so they believe their knowledge of it nullifies the problem. I have no problem, a Corinthian might say, Celebrating a pagan festival at the temple and eating meat there in that celebration because I, I'm not worshiping that God. I, I know it's just idolatry. I understand that. I have that knowledge. It's kind of like saying, hey, I know I have a drinking problem. That's why I limit myself to one shot. Or saying, well, I know pornography is, is a problem, so I won't watch anything over a rated R movie. That's where I draw my line. And they're kidding themselves. They get idolatry. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying just because we understand a cultural temptation or a sin doesn't mean that we wink at it and invite it to supper. And far too many of us do or have in the church. You know, where you're with a friend and you're on your way out to the movies and you know it's a movie you probably wouldn't take Jesus to, but you're both Christians. You both get it. You both understand you're not going to do the things that are represented on the screen. You're just, you're just going for some entertainment. No big deal. We get it. And that was a Corinthian problem. The first three verses now concerning things sacrificed to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. They had written back to Paul saying, look, we have knowledge. 
We know what we're doing. Paul writes, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Knowledge makes arrogant. The word is fusio. Fusio. It's got an oo on it, which should make you pause. What does it mean? It means to puff or to swell up. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge swells the head. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 too, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and have all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. I'm like a balloon, man. Nothing but air inside. The ultimate airhead is someone who has all kinds of knowledge but no love. You're nothing. Far better, the Apostle writes, to be known by God than to have all the knowledge in the world. Because knowledge itself is just going to make you an empty blowhard. Knowledge without love. Knowledge puffs up. We get it. We have knowledge, they said. And Paul says, you're right on the edge of a big problem. Verse 4, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. So Paul's in agreement with him. Yes, I agree. You're right. You're right that you understand idolatry. And you're right that you understand there are no other gods. Verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist for Him. Wait a minute. Many gods? Many lords? They wrote to Paul, probably, saying, we have knowledge that there are many idols, but we're not concerned about that because there's only one true God. And Paul says, yeah, you're right. There are many, there, there are many gods and many idols. And they're like, wait a minute, no, they're just idols. And Paul says, no, they're not. They are gods. And they are lords. And there are many of them. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 17 For the Lord your God is a God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Now the word God in the Hebrew scriptures, Elohim also is translated judge and was even used for human judges by God at certain times. The Lord acknowledges there are positions, principalities, authorities, gods and lords, if you will. He said as much. And and Paul will, in chapter 10 especially, acknowledge demonic and spiritual entities. And they do not compare with the one true God the Father and the one and the same Lord Jesus Christ. However, and here's the thing, whoever or whatever a person worships becomes their God and Lord. And there are many. Belshazzar, that buffoonish ruler of Babylon, had a big feast. Daniel chapter 5 verse 4 says, They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 verse 8, When you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. 
There are no gods in that they don't compare to the only, the one, the true God. But there are many gods and lords because there are many things to which we ascribe worship. Many things to which we bend the knee. Many things into which we put our trust, our faith, our hope. All these gods and lords. Paul would say this again, in fact, to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, he writes, First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil life, a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For, verse 5, there is one God. And one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony at the proper time. There is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In Jesus, you not only know him, you are known by him and loved by him. And that's the difference between God and between Jesus and all other gods or lords is that you are known by God. I can emulate, I can light up my cell phone for James Taylor at a concert. Is he a God? Is he a Lord? You know what? He doesn't know me from Adam. God does. God knows me. I love God, but more... God loves me. And so Paul says, yeah, there are all these places you can go, these idols that you think, ah, we get idolatry, we understand idols. Listen, they will take you down because you will find yourself lured back to them. And in our culture and today, we do have many gods and many lords, but none of them know you, none of them love you. Not like Jesus. Verse 7 However, Paul writes, not all men have this knowledge. And he's starting to get to the point. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. And so we come to the second arrogant argument of the Corinthians. We get idolatry, so it's no big deal. That's number one. Number two, they know God is indifferent to food. God doesn't care about food. Whether we eat it or we don't eat it, whether it was sacrificed to an idol or not, God doesn't care about these things. And Paul agrees here. Food will not commend us to God. He says the same thing to the church at Rome, Romans fourteen seventeen. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The problem is, there were those who took this a step further. Since food doesn't matter to God, it doesn't matter what we eat, it doesn't matter where we eat it, and it doesn't matter who it affects. And now we're getting to the problem. It's like saying this, since the Bible does not explicitly forbid drinking, and I'm talking alcohol, then it doesn't matter if I drink at home, at a nice restaurant, or in a local bar or tavern. 
And since there's no prohibition against drinking a glass of wine, a beer, even a shot of whiskey, as long as I'm not getting drunk, the Bible has no problem with it. Therefore, it doesn't matter who sees me doing it. And that's where we're wrong. And that's where we start to become so self-centered in our thinking and in our knowledge which puffs up. Hey, I know what the Bible really teaches about wine. Therefore, I limit myself to the one glass. And yet, it does affect others. And it does matter when or where or how you go about it. And Paul brings this out with meat sacrifice to idols. A leader in the church walking out of a pagan temple, is that not going to have an influence on someone? If you drive down the main street of Anacortes and you see me walking out of a tavern on a Friday night, aren't you going to take a double look? I may have just had a burger. But still you're going to look and say, did he have a burger or did he have a burger and a couple of brews? What's really going on here? Now for the stronger brother, they might be like, no, it's no problem. I know Rick, that's not an issue. What about someone who's struggling with alcohol? Well, Pastor Rick drinks, so therefore it must be okay. Pastor Rick doesn't, but I'm just saying then it must be okay. Well, my friend who's a strong believer, he's in church every Sunday morning. She's always there, and she doesn't have any problem drinking. In fact, I saw her a little tipsy at the last Christmas party, so obviously it's not a problem. And Paul says, we're not thinking clearly. We're not thinking about who we're affecting when we're engaging in these behaviors that we have, we think, the freedom to engage in. We've got to process these things. We've got to seek to understand. Where did I leave off? Verse 9. But take care, he says, that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Do you see the connection? And again, he's going to deal with this further on in chapter 10. But skip ahead to chapter 10, verse 23, and just listen to two verses. Paul raises this issue, in fact, three times in the letter to Corinth. All things are lawful. And then he says, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but that of his neighbor. That's a higher standard. And while we sit around in our, in our little you know, biblical seminars talking about what's allowable and what's not, and what's okay and what's not, and what's covered by grace and what is not, and we say, boy, look at all the things that are covered by grace, as we imbibe in those things and enjoy them, are we considering who it might affect? How about I'm free to have a drink every now and then? You are. I would support that notion. You could. But where are you doing it? And who's it affecting? And I'm not encouraging you to be a closet drinker either. (laughs) Well, I'll just drink at home alone. (laughs) No. Do we think through these things and process them? We are free in Christ. We live under the complete and total expansive cover of grace. All things are lawful, he says. But if my freedom 
hurts another believer, am I conveying grace to them? If I'm not even considering how it might cause them to stumble, a stumbling block. He uses that phrase. Normally, stumbling block, when we see it in the Scriptures, it's scandalon. That's not the word here. The word here is proskoma. And a proskoma is an obstacle literally over which someone stumbles. We pulled into a parking place today at Red Robin. Hannah and and Cheryl and I and the kids. We met met the in-laws for lunch. And as we pulled in, nice place, there were no other cars around, no way the, the van could get scratched. Hannah goes to open her door and there are rocks all along the side. And just... You have insurance? Just check it. No, I didn't, it didn't do any damage. It was fine. It was fine. But a stumbling block. I mean, there, there are things you're not looking for. You don't know they're there. And next thing you know, you're falling flat on your face. And Paul says, are you that to somebody else? They didn't even know you were there. They didn't even think it was an issue. And suddenly they're stumbling. You're fine. But they're not. Have you considered them? Gang, the issue that Paul is driving toward and will epically complete in 1 Corinthians 13 is love. Love. Do we factor love and grace in to the way we act and how it might impact or affect other believers or non-believers? Do I love people enough to encourage faith and to extend hope? And to offer the very love of Christ. And for Paul, this is always the bigger issue than whether or not I have the right to do something. Verse 12. He says, And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, this is heavy, you sin against Christ. Do you realize what he just said? You may not be sinning in eating that meat that came from an idolatrous temple. You may not be sinning in drinking that beer. might not be a problem between you and the Lord and in your understanding and your knowledge and the grace that you're under and, and there's no prohibition on it. You may not be sinning, but if you cause another to sin, now you are. Because the greater issue is not your rights. It's their faith. It's grace extended to another believer. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, if food causes, Paul says, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. If that's the issue, I'm done. Oh, but Paul, one word, porterhouse, man. How can you, really? Don't you think after a few months of that, summertime comes around and the neighbors are barbecuing up some tasty burgers? I mean, come on, Paul. You're never going to eat meat again? Yeah, I will never eat meat again if it affects my brother. This is not a cry for vegetarianism. It's a call to compassion. And again, it's not the meat that's the issue. It's the weak. As the so-called strong believers traipse back into the pagan temples to celebrate idolatrous festivals, oh, the festivals didn't mean anything to them. It wasn't an issue for them. But for the weaker brethren in the fellowship, it was causing serious trouble. Because some of them were going, oh, (laughs) I guess it is okay. And in they went and began to sin. We've got to factor each other into our faith. You are not an island in the church. You do not walk this faith walk alone. You are surrounded by brothers and sisters, some stronger than you, some much weaker than you. 
And you do, you may not have any idea about this, but you do have an impact on them. You do affect the way someone else processes their faith walk with Jesus. And they may not have the full understanding of grace that you have, but by extending your grace to do whatever you want, if it causes them to stumble, I just think it's legitimate that we start to factor that in and think about and consider not just my rights, but how does this affect the body of Christ? Now, two more Corinthian contentions will arise. They'll become clear in Paul's three-chapter response to this issue of idolatry and idol temples and and the meat sacrifice to the idols there. Number three, the, the, the next one, is that they assume the protection of baptism and communion. Check this out. They believed, and it becomes apparent in chapter 10, as long as they were dunked, and continually imbibe in the Lord's Supper, it was like a supernatural Teflon coating sin would just slide right off. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Paul chooses two examples from Israel's history. The one being walking through the Red Sea, which he says that is a picture, it's an allusion to baptism. And then manna and water from the rock is an illusion, Paul says, a picture of communion, the body and blood of Christ. And he says, you know, what, what happened here and, and what the issue here is in context is if those things didn't work to make Israel slippery clean, they're not going to work for you either. What do you mean, Rick? Baptism and the Lord's Supper are absolutely meaningful. You know what they are not? Magical. They're not magic. You don't go into the water of baptism, come out, and suddenly, man, I can do anything, go anywhere, say anything, experience anything, because I'm sin free. You are in that you are saved. You are in that you gave Jesus your heart, and He forgives and He cleanses you. But the water of baptism is not a magical dunking tank. Nor is communion. Man, i got to get to church on Sunday morning and take communion. Why? Well, because last night was a real bad night. And when I take communion, I feel cleaner. Listen, if you do, the only reason you feel cleaner is because you remember what Jesus did for you. But it is not a magical slice of bread, and it is not a magical drink of wine or juice. Meaningful, yes. Magical, no. They do not instantly inoculate against sin which is why further down in chapter 10 verse 13 Paul will say no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation which means temptation will come he will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it what are you saying Paul you still have a will in these things You can think through them. God provides an escape from all temptation in Jesus. So take the escape. 
Now, there's one more puffy argument that the Corinthians present to Paul. And I'm kind of covering all four of these so that as we continue through, you you get the background of, of what he's responding to. And he combats this argument vigorously in chapter 9. And that is, they question or argue against Paul's apostolic authority. After laying down their case for why they should be able to eat in the pagan temples and why they should be able to do the things they do and that they're free in Christ and they have the knowledge and they've got the wisdom to do all these things and it's not a big deal, they then say, and by the way, who are you to start telling us what to do? No question there were those who were of Cephas. Remember back in chapter 1? They're dividing up. Some were of Paul, some were of Apollos, some were of Cephas. Why were they of Cephas? Because he's a legitimate apostle. I don't know about Paul. What makes you think that you've got the authority to stand there and tell us what to do or to send us these letters telling us what's prohibited and what's not? So they challenge whether or not has the right to direct them on these matters. There are two reasons why. One is because Paul refused to be on the church payroll. And he'll address this in just a minute. He wouldn't take any income from the church at Corinth. We're going to get into that, and it's interesting. But there was an assumption in Greek culture that the legitimate philosophers had patrons and were financially supported. Paul primarily was a tent maker. And so because he wouldn't receive a patronage, they're like, well, he's not on staff. Right? Did you hear that guy preach Sunday morning at the bridge? Yeah, I totally disagree with him, but no big deal, he's not on staff. He's not one of the paid pastors. Wages have absolutely nothing to do with authority. Please understand that. The Word of God gives us the ring of authority. Well, secondly, they question his apostolic authority because he wouldn't take pay. They also question his authority because Paul seems to have compromised himself. Get this. When he was with Jews, he would not eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. But when Paul was with Gentiles, he did. So they're like, see? You did it! And Paul would reply, yeah, but not in the pagan temples. Yes, I was free to do so. But I didn't go dying in the very places that you guys are claiming it's okay to dine. I I was thoughtful in where I was. They are illogically splitting hairs rather than intelligently considering the facts and their faith. And as I said last week, Christianity is reasonable. It is not an idiot religion. Tragically, there are a lot of stupid Christians. No offense, none of you are. You want to know how to be a stupid Christian? Don't open your Bible. Make assumptions. Whatever the pastor says, believe it. Stupid. Idiots who claim to know Jesus because they once or twice a year darken the doorstep of a church, that's not not smart. And then those who who get all wrung out about different issues and and procedures in churches, and all stressed out, and those things don't even matter. 
Christianity is reasonable. And Paul is reasonable and explains why this is okay. Why this is not. Think about where you are. Use your head. Yes, we walk in the Spirit, but we also have brains. Use them, Paul would say. So, we take up Paul's apostolic defense in chapter 9, verse 1. See, we already covered chapter 8 and you didn't even know it. (laughs) Chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free, he says? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? And each of these rhetorical questions emphasize a resounding yes. Yes, Paul is free. Yes, he is an apostle. Yes, he saw the Lord. And yes, he planted the church at Corinth. He says, didn't I do all these things? And by the way, Paul is not just on defense here. In fact, Paul is going on the offensive. He is going at them, and we see this. Suddenly there's a salvo of 17 non-stop confrontational questions across the next 14 verses. Question after question after question after question. And before they can even answer one, he's on to the next one. Because Paul is making a point. And note this. It is what I believe is Paul's greatest apostolic claim. The reason why we today, 2,000 years later, should consider the writings of Paul as absolutely legitimate, inspired Scripture. Why? Because he says, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Well, we know over 500 of the brethren saw Jesus in His resurrection. It's more than that. First of all, it was the requirement of any apostle. In Acts chapter 1, where they're trying to figure out what to do because Judas had hung himself, and so now they had an open seat in the office, and they begin to draw straws and cast lots to figure out who the next guy would be, and it falls on Matthias. I can tell you one thing about Matthias that you can know for certain. He had seen the Lord in his resurrection. That's why he was one of a couple of men that they were casting lots for. You had to have seen the Lord resurrected. But you see, the true apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm talking about of the twelve, is that they had seen, they had been commissioned, and even been trained by the Lord Jesus Himself, my friends, Paul had been. He didn't just see Jesus on the Damascus Road. He was commissioned by Jesus on the Damascus Road, and... He was trained up by Jesus over a period of time. What are you talking about, Rick? Skip ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15, verse 3. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then He appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles. I am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am. 
and His grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. I saw Jesus resurrected. I witnessed Him. I was the last of the apostles to do so. Paul includes himself along with the other apostles, along with the previous eleven in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, When God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me, so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. When Paul went away to Arabia, why did he do that? Not to consult with flesh and blood, my friends. But I believe to be trained up. And so he was. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he describes what is a remarkable visionary training that took him much further, eternally further than Damascus. 2 Corinthians 12.3 I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. And you put all this together, the bottom line is Paul is established biblically with apostolic authority, the same as Peter, the same as John, the same as any of the prior eleven. He is, I believe, one of the twelve. When Revelation, the end of the book, 21-22, talk about the names of the apostles inscribed in the New Jerusalem, my opinion, and this is absolutely just opinion and it's not a salvation issue, but Paul's going to be one of the twelve names. Because he was called by Jesus. He saw Jesus. He was commissioned by Jesus to preach the gospel. And the apostles and the apostolic writing and the scriptures of the New Testament bear the same weight of authority as the entire Hebrew scriptures, all the writings of the prophets. Because it came the same way by the Spirit of God. Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, verse 20, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now we know today that God still gives apostles. But there's a difference. Apostle can just mean sent one. There are others outside of the twelve, including Paul. There are others. Barnabas is called an apostle. Priscilla and Aquila are referenced as among the apostles. Are they apostles like like Paul or Peter or John? No, but they were sent. They had an apostolic calling. And so Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 tells us that the Father gives us apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. But of those today, called by God today, our authority, my authority as a Bible teacher, only goes so far as holy writ. That is the Word of God. Which is why I say to you, if you're listening to what's said up here and you're just accepting what Rick says because Rick says it, you are in serious trouble. But if you compare what's said by the Word of God and it aligns with God's Word, then there is authority there and we ought to all be paying attention to it. 
Paul's second argument was not only his apostolic calling, but it was their very existence. Going on in verse 2, he says, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. You are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. There would not be a church at Corinth if Paul hadn't planted them. And they're questioning his authority and he's the one who started the Corinthian church? Come on, guys. Paul says, look, did I not start this ball rolling? Wasn't I there? Are you not my work in the Lord, he says? Who had greater authority by Jesus than that? And then Paul goes on, verse 3, My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, Peter, who was married, we know that he had a mother-in-law. You don't have a mother-in-law unless you're married. You don't want a mother... No, I'm I'm kidding. (laughs) Don't we have a right to this? And then he says in verse 6, Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? So we know this kind of helps us narrow down when this letter was written to Corinth. He was on his first missionary journey and he's still with Barnabas. This is before the two divided ways and went separate directions. But Paul's making a great point here. Don't I have, personally, all the same rights as all the rest of the apostles? And then he he pops three examples in a clip. Bam, bam, bam. The right to eat and drink, or not. The right to be married, like Peter, or not. The right to have jobs on the side if we want to, or not. I have every right, Paul is saying. That word right is an important word in the Greek. It is exousia. We've translated it before. We didn't translate it right. We translated it power. It's where we get our word exertion. The exousia. And what it means is right or power or liberty or in this context, it's an authoritative right. Don't I have the exousia to do these things? The power to do these things? The authority to do these things? If I should so choose? I have this right. And Paul's comparison now to all the other apostles is not his way of claiming those rights, but showing what rights he has chosen to set aside. He's saying, look at the other apostles. I have all these same rights, and I'm not availing myself of them. And this is such a key with Paul. It's a totally different view. American citizens, listen up. This is a totally different view than the power or the right of liberty. What Paul says here runs completely counter. What are you talking about, Rick? It was 1775. The Virginia Convention. Famously, Patrick Henry stood up and said, Give me liberty or give me death. Give me liberty or give me death. You know that Patrick Henry wasn't the first to say that? He, in fact, like so many of the founding fathers in the West, they were heavily influenced by Greek culture. And so, in the classical Greek, and this is a classical Greek value, the phrase, eletheria ethanatos, 
Eleftheria ethanatos. What is that? Liberty or death. It was spoken by the philosophers. Paul would say, death for liberty. I would rather die than someone else gain liberty. I would rather give up all my rights if it means freedom for another person. That is Jesus. That is a biblical mentality. Give me liberty or give me death. Paul says, no, I will die so that you can have your freedom in Christ. I will give up every right I have. The right to eat meat, please. I'll give that up if it'll save somebody. If it'll mean rights for somebody else. If it means freedom for somebody else. And what was it that Jesus said? He said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And even as the Father knows me, I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I love American freedom. And I do not deny that there are hard fought for rights that we maintain even to me here tonight. And I'm not saying that that wasn't important. And I'm not, again, denying our independence. Denying what the founders fought for. What our military have fought for over all these years. But I'm telling you as a follower of Jesus Christ, it is not about fighting for your rights. It's about giving them up. It's a willingness to say, whatever right I think I have in the world, whatever freedom, whatever liberty, if by giving it up someone else gets saved... I waive my rights. It's interesting that probably the worst church that Jesus wrote to in Revelation chapter 3 was Laodicea. Laodicea, lukewarm Laodicea. It's it's the go-to church anytime a pastor wants to talk about being lukewarm. That's the one we point to, Laodicea. You know what Laodicea means? The people's rights. The people's rights. Nothing makes a people more lethargic than thinking their rights are more important than anybody else's. Jesus came along and said, I'm the creator of the entire universe, but I will die for you. Paul comes along and says, you're writing to me about how much knowledge you have to be able to go and eat in the pagan temples and it's hurting your brothers and sisters? I don't care if you have that right. Why would you avail yourself of it if it hurts them? And he was incensed by it. And you get this in these pounding questions. And I honestly think that as followers of Jesus, we would do well to practice more laying down of our rights than fighting for them, at least in the church where other people are involved. Well, Rick, if we have that mentality, if we just lay down our rights, then what? We might end up in prison. Or worse, we could lose our constitutional liberties. We could. But who might be saved? See, that's the question we have to get to. Who by my setting aside of the rights that I have been given... Who might be saved? For Paul, that's the bigger issue. Again, I'm a patriot. I truly am. But if giving up my American rights, my freedom, resulted in the salvation of others, if we became a communist state like China, you know what's happening in the church in China right now? People are getting saved like crazy. 
As a matter of fact, if you compare the number of people saved annually in America to the number of people saved annually in China, I will take China. Because under that oppression and under that regime and under the lack of any rights for the people, freedom in Christ Jesus is flourishing. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7.22, For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he was called while he was free, you, me. We are bond slaves of Jesus Christ. We are Christ's slaves. And I believe Paul's barrage of questions are, are meant to point this out, to help them understand. Look at what I have the right to do and look at what I am giving up. Verse 7. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? So it's not only the examples we see around us, but it's the law itself. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. That's a great verse in the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 25 verse 4. Look up Deuteronomy 25, read through it. It's interesting. It's completely out of the blue. It's like there's no context for it. Do not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. Well, that's nice for the ox, but what's that got to do with anything? Paul says, gives us context, explains, God's not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes. For our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. So he lays out physical examples, soldiers, vine dressers, shepherds, plowmen, threshers. He points to Torah law. And he's doing this to support the earning of wages for work accomplished. You can make money doing this, Paul's saying. For an apostle to have patronage in his mission work is okay. In fact, it's completely allowable. They have the right, we have the right to do that, to accept money for preaching. And if that's bothered any of you, check this out. 1 Timothy 5.17 The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. Is it okay to pay pastors? Absolutely. Of course it is. Yeah, but what if my pastor is dumb as an ox? There you go. Put a feed bag on his head and let him go to town. Well, what about volunteerism? I mean, we need more of that. More, more men, more women willing to, to sacrifice and, and go volunteer. Are you willing to do that? Hey, volunteering is great. But Paul makes a great point. What is the value that we place on those who give their lives 24-7 to the service of the gospel? The point that Paul's making here, according to his own right, is, hey, I could take pay for this. And actually, it's not only legitimate, it's biblical. I should be paid for this. Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches them. Which means if you come in here on a Wednesday night with a Pop-Tart, 
better have a second. (laughs) Let me make a practical application real quickly and we'll move on. 40 to 45%, Glenn, check me on this, of our tithes and offerings go to salary here. Is that right? 40 to 45% of all tithes and offerings that are given at the Bridge Fellowship go to staff and ministry salary. Mostly mine, but no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) Goes to salaries. Is that okay? And we're talking full time, uh, part time. 40 to 45% seems like an awful lot, Rick. No, actually, that's extremely healthy. Most churches are up around 65, 70, 75%. And we have decided we want to maintain right around that 40 to 45% and not go more than that, which means we don't hire on unless we know that we're still able to stay right there in that healthy place. So, so there's stewardship involved. But I tell you that for this reason. Understand, and this is my mentality on this, people are always more important than programs. I would always rather hire someone on to do a job then adapt a bunch of programs from books into the Bridge Fellowship and say, we're going to run these. Give me a person any day of the week. Give me a man or a woman over a bigger budget in the ministry of the gospel and things happen. Because God works through people. And Paul is making this point very strongly. It's not an issue. He says, verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? He makes a very strong case for patronage of the gospel. Nevertheless, he says, we did not use this right. But we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Paul, you're confusing me because on the one hand, you make a powerful case for salaried preachers, for salaried ministry positions. And then on the other hand, you say, but, however, nevertheless, we didn't avail ourselves of that right. If the right is secured biblically, then why did Paul give it up? And the only thing I can figure is somewhere on his first missionary journey, Some believe it happened at Thessalonica. Paul realized in his unique apostolic position that he had to be careful about his patronage because it was starting to affect his ability to preach the gospel unhindered. Gordon Fee wrote, Lest the gospel come into disrepute. The gospel was so important to Paul that he'd rather work all day long sewing together tents and then go to a local synagogue and preach all night than have the gospel spurned by somebody. And apparently it happened, or someone called him out on this. And so Acts chapter 18, verse 3, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with Aquila and Priscilla, and they were working for, by trade, they were tent makers. Now, for Jews, Paul fires off another example of the right to be supported, a priestly example, not only in the law of Moses, but acted out in practice. Verse 13, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat of the temple? And those 
who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. That's the way it was set up. The Levites didn't plow fields or or tend sheep. They tended the temple. And so God was sure that they were paid for it, both monetarily and in terms of subsistence. Meat that was sacrificed at the temple of God. Bread that was put out on the table of showbread. These things were eaten by the priests. They were provided for in their priestly service. And verse 14, Paul says, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel, and your pastor does. This is all I do. I don't have another job. Thank you. But this is my work. And this is my focus. And and Paul makes a legitimate case for it, lays it out. But he refers here, it's amazing to me, he says, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Who's he talking about? Jesus. Jesus directed this. Matthew 10, verse 9, Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts, or a bag for your journey, or even two coats or even sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. When Jesus sent out the twelve in Matthew chapter 10, He said, don't worry about it, they're going to provide for you. Receive it. Take the patronage of people. When you come into a town, they offer you food, take it. They offer you a place to stay for free, take it. They offer you money for your services, patronage, take it. It's fine. That's legitimate, Jesus would say. Now, this is not about making a case for staff raises. Really not the right time of year for that anyway. This is Paul making his case for exactly the opposite. Verse 15, But I have used none of these things. And I am not writing these things so that it will be, so that it will be, will be done so in my case. For, he says, it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. Wait, what? Paul doesn't want to get a salary so he can boast? Listen, this is not an arrogant pride. Paul is laying claim to his apostolic commission. He is defending his right to function as an apostle of God. Why is that so important? Because the word that he's speaking is words of truth and salvation. And if they undermine his apostleship, some might not receive the gospel at all. And it's too important. And so Paul makes this very strong case. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, he said, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul, that's crazy. I mean, by today's standards, Paul literally gave up everything for the gospel. A paid position in the Jerusalem church, you know, for the gospel. His pedigree for the gospel. His educational training for the gospel. Everything that that made Paul who he was prior to meeting Jesus, he gave it up for the sake of the gospel. And it's ridiculous, crazy, insane, and it is Paul's boast. 
That's his boast, verse 16. He says, For if I, I love this, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. I love it. What is Paul saying? Either way, willingly, volunteering, or not, I have to do this. That's what he's saying. The boast, the glory, what he lays claim to is, I don't have an alternative lifestyle. I don't have anything else I can choose. I have to do this. Because I am called and compelled and equipped by Jesus Himself. I have to preach the Gospel. You might call that being under compulsion. Okay. Others would look at Paul and say, no, you chose this life. Okay. Either way, I can't not preach the Gospel, Paul says. I absolutely have to do it. He's not alone in this. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, the prophet said, If I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I'm weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. you think Jeremiah volunteered to be the weeping prophet? No. He had to. He literally had no other choice because he knew what he knew. Peter and John were the same way. Acts chapter 4, verse 20. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We can't help it. And Paul says, I am a preacher under compulsion. I have to preach the gospel. Verse 18. What then is my reward that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Well, then, so why do you accept a salary, Rick? So my children can eat? Why would I? I'll tell you why. It's very simple. So that I have the time to study. So that I have the time to do what the rest of you don't have the time to do because you have to be at another job supporting your families, working for your living. But God has so provided for my family such that I don't have to worry about that. And I take very seriously Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And they have been. God always provides that. So I don't think about it. Churches take up weekly offerings, don't they? They pass the bag or they pass the plate or they have special offerings and they seek to compel people to give. And they have every right. And I fully support that. And we're going to see it in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Paul lays out, look, lay by and store. Store it up for when I come. Set it aside. Every first day of the week you ought to be collecting an offering for the work of the kingdom. And so churches have every right to do that. We don't pass a bag at the bridge. We don't pass a plate. Why? Because... From the very beginning, God said, let the giving here be simply an act of faith. In fact, even more so, don't do anything that compels someone to give because the bag's coming. All right. You know, or do what we did as kids. We had those ten plates, and when they went by, we just flicked the bottom. Ting! There you go. 
We had a small church. I grew up in that church. I was five years old when my parents started, so I helped out in all kinds of things. And I always took up the offering, and my dad always made me give it back. I mean, it was that kind of mentality. King, I just think we shouldn't focus too much on money. Because I think a focus too much on money and on giving and on doing that, and we should give, we should all give. I've talked about tithing, I've talked about offerings and gifts and how we trust the Lord with our finances, which really aren't ours, they're His anyway. We've talked about that as a matter of faith. But, but here's the thing, I think too much focus on money coupled with a lack of understanding about good stewardship can turn people off from hearing the gospel. That's what Paul's getting at. I'm not going to avail myself of that. I don't want that to be any part of what's going on here. I want people to see Jesus. And with Paul, I would rather be dead than get in the way of someone coming to the Lord. Strong words. Now, as the dust settles from Paul's Tommy gun tumult of testing questions, (laughs) verse 19... For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. Why, Paul? So that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law. Though not being under law myself, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. He says, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some. And that is not a lack of integrity. That's the extent to which Paul was willing to go to relate to anybody. Not a lack of integrity, integrity, but a charge of relatability without compromising God's Word one iota. Without compromising morals or violating biblical principles. But coming alongside people, Paul, as best as he could for the Gospel. He lived his life for the Gospel. That alone makes me respect Paul immensely. Oh, not worship him. I worship Jesus. Paul's just my brother. Co-laborer, you might say, in the Gospel with all of us. But wow, what an amazing person. So we can get hung up on unimportant side issues of meat and money and even management in the church, but I ask you this question, why are we here? What is this for? Is it so we can all be comfortable and have a a lock-stepping understanding of how to live life? You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life. Jesus says, it's these that testify of Me. Why are we here? We are here for Jesus and the Gospel. For Jesus and the Gospel. That is it. And Paul says, I do all things for the sake of the Gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Did you get that? I do all things for the gospel so I can be a fellow partaker of it. What is he saying? Good news is meant to be shared. I've got good news, Paul says. And I share it so that I can partake in it. 
Think about it. You, 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 you've just cooked up a, a, a wonderful meal. Tomorrow night, we're going to have ch- chicken paprikash at my house. It's one of my favorites. Chicken with a red paprika cream sauce. And then homemade dumplings. Oh, the best. And Cheryl and her mom and her dad actually are going to labor all day tomorrow to make this fantastic meal. And then they're going to set it on the table and they're going to go for a walk because they really don't want to eat any of it themselves. How dumb is that? Of course they'll sit down at the table. Why? To be a fellow partaker in this good meal. And Paul says, I preach the good news so I can be a partaker in the good news. I gave you a ridiculous example, but think about this. How many people receive the good news, this fantastic meal, this feast, and they sit down and eat alone. And they don't share it with anybody. Paul says, you know the gospel? Share it so you can be a fellow partaker of it. That's what Paul's about. A fellow partaker. Hebrews 12.1 We have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. I would say living and dead. Actually all living, but here and there. We've got a cloud of witnesses. Those who understand, who have accepted, who have received the gospel. And Paul says, Hebrews 12, 1, So let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Get this. Jesus is the ultimate partaker of good news. He did it for the joy set before Him. He went through the cross and came out the other side resurrected for the joy. The joy. You. You are the joy set before Him. Family around the table. People at the feast of God. You're the joy. And Jesus went through it to become, like Paul said, a fellow partaker of it. Jesus partakes of the Gospel with every single person who is saved. He gave us the good news Himself. Speaking of running the race and keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, Paul concludes all this. Stick with me just a minute longer. Or two. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, Paul writes, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave. Wait for the so that. We'll come back to it just a second. I discipline my body. What a great verse to be reading this week during the Olympics, huh? This is the example Paul uses. Look at the athletes. Consider their self-discipline. All of the work and the training and the effort and the hours that went in just to getting to Rio so they could swim in green swimming pools. All of the effort to get to this pinnacle of their success. To get to the Olympics. And Paul says, I discipline my body. 
That word discipline is far heavier than what you might think. It's hupopiazo. I hupopiazo my body. What does that mean? To beat something black and blue. That is what the word means in the Greek. It also refers to a space right underneath the eye, which means to give a black eye. Paul says, I give a black eye to my body. I beat my body black and blue. He's not talking physically. Don't go home and say, I've got to be a better Christian for Jesus. And, you know, no. That is how serious the picture here is of discipline. It is athletic discipline to reach that pinnacle, to get to that place. How serious are you about the gospel event? How serious are you? Paul said, I beat myself black and blue for the sake of the gospel. I will go through anything if it will see someone saved. How serious are you? Did you hear about hashtag Phelpsface? Anyone hear about this? Am I the only one who heard about this? Michael Phelps. What was 2000, I believe, was the first Olympics that he swam in. Here we are 16 years later. And he's still swimming. And he's still winning. He is now, he holds the record, he has 21 gold medals now. And the games are not yet over. And so, hashtag Phelpsface. It's hilarious. It's actually become kind of funny. Check it out when you go home. Just... Google hashtag Phelpsface. What it was is he was about ready to swim the 200 meter. He was swimming a heat for the final event. He was swimming against a guy who had been trash talking him, a younger swimmer, a guy who was fresh and new and kind of making fun of him. And the, the press caught a picture of Michael Phelps sitting there. He's got his hood on, he's in the corner, and he's just like... I mean, he's just staring down and, and grimacing and, and, and concentrated and intense. Phelps face. And he went on to get second in the heat, and then he won the 200 meter and got the gold. Intense concentration, and people are making all kinds of fun with it now. You know, hashtag Phelps face. They're saying things like arriving at uh, Chick-fil-A and realizing it's Sunday. Hashtag Phelps face. So it's a thing, and I share that with you so that you too can be on the cutting edge this week. Phelps face. How focused are you? How He was that focused for 200 meters of water, man. To get a, a, a shiny metal that's going to burn, that will not last into eternity. Man. What is your focus? How intense are you? Consider Paul in all this. As he makes his defense, it is all, it's not for Paul. Paul is not the point. The gospel is. The gospel is. And he says, I discipline my body and make it my slave, watch this, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. What? Never wonder what that meant. So that I won't be disqualified. For what? Salvation? Is Paul indicating that he's afraid that if he doesn't run the course to the very end, he might not be saved? No. Not at all. Now, Paul does keep the tension between warning and assurance pretty taut. But that's not the point here. In the NIV translation, if you happen to be reading an NIV, you might note that it rightly adds to disqualified 
for the prize. So that I will not be disqualified for the prize. Why does that matter? Why would they add that? Because Paul had just mentioned what the prize was, an imperishable wreath. Back in verse 25. The athletes, they run. Michael Phelps, he swims to get a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable wreath. A Stephanos. Stephanos. Also translated crown. So I ask you, what is the imperishable crown that Paul does not want to be disqualified to receive? What's the imperishable crown that he wants to be qualified to receive? Philippians 4.1 My beloved brethren whom I long to see, my joy and my crown. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 Who is our hope, our joy, or our crown? Of exaltation. Is it not you in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming? For Paul, the imperishable wreath was every single person who would come to faith in Jesus because he preached the gospel. That's the crown that he was running for. How about you? Rachel, come on up. The crown. I call that hashtag apostle face. Are you intense for the gospel? Are you committed to the kingdom? Would you see someone, just one other person, saved because you are running for the imperishable wreath?